Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone had a fantastic Thanksgiving, folks. My wife said, no, you can't record the day before Thanksgiving, which was my mother's birthday, or on Thanksgiving, so I didn't get to do it. But today, it is Friday night going into Saturday morning. It is Black Friday, so I decided to bring my father on the show who is Nigerian, so it makes sense for this to be Black <laughs> Friday. <laughs> So it's quite interesting, folks. You've all been following the ongoing stories of my son, William, being born. And it's amazing that handsome little fella brought together my mom and my dad who are divorced. They've been together on a few occasions uh, over the last several years. But it was pretty amazing to see them. My mom did not kill my father. My father attempted to kill my mother, but that did not happen. The car wouldn't start. The car wouldn't start. All right, so my father's here with me today. I always talk shit about him on this show. No, and then we did the uh, Overcoming Adversity episode, my wife and I's journey surviving the Rockefeller Medical Industrial Complex at the hospital, and I told you guys that name came from my father, Overcoming Adversity. So today we're going to talk a little bit about his uh, history as a police officer, uh, as a private investigator, I've mentioned to you many times on the show, that is where I sort of picked up on picking apart these stories and going into the history of eugenics and technocracy and transhumanism was uh, growing up driving around with him when I was two years old, stopping at cop bars uh, and Polish clubs and Italian clubs where they would shoot darts. So how are you today, Father? Good. That's pretty good. That wasn't bullshit either. That, that was true what you just said. <laughs> yeah. But I used to leave you in the car. 
for, for like five hours because I didn't want you to see anything that we were doing. It's very secretive. Well, I remember. It's a closed society. Well, I remember this one bar. It's called Rudy's. It's still around, I think, but not the same thing anymore. But that's where a lot of Yaleys from Yale University hung out, a lot of the cops. Yep. And there was a guy named Hank there who had long hair. He was like a, a hippie, had a piece of peyote around his neck, and yep. he had a dog named Badger. And we used to feed it cheese. I remember yep. that. Yeah, and he, and he owned uh, contiguous to uh, Rudy's, uh, his own Mexican food restaurant, Poco Loco. So um, uh, Hank uh, lived up on a hill in uh, Wallingford, a rural part of Connecticut, um, not too far from where we lived in, also a fairly rural part of Connecticut. But Hank would hunt deer and uh, grow corn, and but he could put a roof on a house. He could cook enchiladas. He can do... Uh, you know, sell you uh, like a quarter gram of friggin' cocaine. He could do anything that uh, a guy would want done back in those days. It, he's a very all-around kind of guy, a woodsman, uh, ladies' man, uh, pretty interesting cat. I had a lot of really crazy, interesting friends. So he was a uh, Mexican before there were Mexicans here in the United States. He he was one of the first ones that came in across the border uh, undetected. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a crazy place. Now, I want to go back because uh, I, I mentioned to the audience before, was it late 70s, early 80s, uh, you were a cop and attempted to take on City Hall. So it's it's quite interesting because we talk a lot about uh, the show, local politics, and stop focusing on uh, federal politics, national politics. And then I told the story about how I attempted to take on City Hall for a two-year period in my late 20s. Uh, but you did it uh, when you were a cop. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that story. Um, well, I went on the job in 1974. Um, I was, uh, 23 years old. I turned 24 while we were in the academy. At that time, police work was, um, a very sought after career, at least around where I, I lived in New Haven with Yale. And then with all of the, the ghetto type of areas, there, it was fairly high crime, uh, urban area that had pockets of wealth and then obviously Yale University were Supreme Court justices and presidents of the United States to be walked around in and out of bars um, it was a very interesting place um, I believe that there were 600 applicants for my class and there were 35 of us that made it that's that's how uh that's how difficult it was maybe to become a cop, but a lot of it was politics. So based on ethnicity, um, certain of the police commissioners would have a certain number of picks for the blacks, for the Jews, for the Italians. Uh, and oftentimes you would almost need to have gone through someone who knew someone or you knew someone or whatever to make it through the oral, the oral part of the police exam was the part where the politics snuck in long story short i made it because a friend of mine knew a jewish guy and i'm half jewish half italian 
that owned a hotel and was on the board of police commissioners, and they needed another Jew or two to fill their quota. And uh, anyway, I, I, I was on the job. I loved the job. I was a great, I thought, a great cop. I got commendations. I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. It came, and I, and I volunteered to work in probably one of the busiest um, um, uh, pockets of crime called the Hill Section uh, of New Haven. Uh, I had a regular car there after my um, two rookie years, and uh, I was doing really well. The thing that I started to learn, though, as I got older, so by this time I'm 26, 27 years old, been on the job about three years, most of the guys who trained us when we first came on, my class was uh, was 35 guys, 35 cops, but we had the first women police officers. So we were followed by the news media. We had about six girls, um, five or six girls. So the, all the local news media followed us during our training uh, to our physical training and some of um, our classroom and this and that, focusing on the fact that women could become cops. The other thing my class was was the first class that had a predominantly college-educated group of people. Though we were physical and strong, um, there were no little wimps. Even the women were okay. But we were trained by a group of cops that came on the job 25 and 30 years earlier, post-World War II. And these were big, giant, physical men, not necessarily able or capable readily of writing a, a search warrant, a uh, uh, report writing of this and that. A lot of their stuff was knowing the street, knowing the people, using the... The nightstick, we had a nightstick and a blackjack at the time. Um, Mace, Mace had just kind of come about, but we never had tasers. We didn't have body cams or any of that stuff. And uh, so we learned from them. And so it was kind of a pretty much of a physical uh, police, pol policing. Now, with my class injecting into the 400 and... 15-person New Haven Police Department was a group of 35 guys that were quote-unquote college-educated guys and women. So it kind of created a new environment for the older people. And those who were already supervisors, captains, lieutenants, and sergeants, many of them had come from that older group, and so they were a little bit intimidated maybe by the... We had one guy... Uh, uh, he he ended up leaving the job and became a lawyer. Um, you know, he just left after like four months. His name is Wick Chambers. They believe that he just infiltrated. He he was a Yale guy. Okay, so he was a Yale grad, and he was there and wanted to be a New Haven cop. You know that? How does that make sense? But <laughs> long story short, there was camaraderie and there was trust on and. Uh, everything went along quite well, but I started to realize uh, probably by my third year that there were a number of mopes, idiots, uh, political hacks that were promoted to the positions of sergeant and lieutenant that you really did not want to be led by, put it that way. Hmm. Um, an incident occurred in the hill section where I live on a real hot, humid August night, 
maybe six, seven o'clock at night, still light out, but this was a, like the most dangerous part of town or whatever. And it came in as a man with a shotgun, man with a shotgun, um, running from a house. And long story short, I had a, um, a reserve officer. Reserve officers are cops who are like, they're not cops, they're trainees. They don't have guns or anything. They wear the uniform. They want to become cops, and they get get a chance to ride along with a police officer and, and learn a lot of things. And, and at some point in time, they hope to make the police department. I had one of those fellows with me in my car, and another of my uh, co-cop uh, uh, buddies, uh, he had one also. So we race over to this location, um, 19 Baldwin Street, and lo and behold, hot, humid, uh, all-black neighborhood. Uh, uh, there's a pickup truck there, and just as I get there, with lights and siren on, I see an older gentleman just jumping into this pickup truck. Old, an old pickup truck. God, it must have been 1950-something pickup truck. And uh, I run over to the truck, and I reach in, and I could tell the guy was drunk, but long story short, I don't know if this is the guy with the shotgun or not. We, we, we don't know that. Meanwhile, the street starts filling up with people. They're all coming out into the street and starting to surround us. By coincidence, as probably three police cars arrived, but of the three, two of us had, we, we always ride one guy and only one guy in a car, but because we had reserve officers, now all of a sudden there's five or six uniform bodies. They all happen to be white. So now we have all the black people that live in the neighborhood. We got the black guy, Mr. Koger, in the pickup truck, and we don't know if he has a gun. Meanwhile, I reach into the truck. I'm telling the guy, stop the truck, stop the truck, stop the truck. He won't stop the truck. He starts to drive away. I reach in. I reach through the steering wheel. I pull the keys out of the ignition. The truck stops. Now I figure this guy, something's up. I open the door. We struggle. I end up pulling him out of the truck. He smashes his head on the curb and lays there like he's dead, unconscious. Now the crowd around me goes totally, completely bananas. By this time, we got 30 or 40. We're surrounded. It looks like a movie, you know, like... Uh, well, well, it looks like uh, anything we've seen in the last few years like since Raymar, the rise of Black Lives Matter. Raymar the Jungle, you know, like one of those deals. Okay, so, now, so we're surrounded by... We still don't know anything about a shotgun. We just know that this guy resisted us. He was drunk. He was trying to drive away. Um, the complainants in these cases, oftentimes, they disappear. So after they call, unlike the technology that we have today with caller ID and this and that, now they realize, uh-oh, a whole bunch of cops came. The guy got in trouble. I ain't going out there and telling him, thank you, officer, for saving my life. So they just they just disappear. So now you don't even have a complainant. You have an old man laying against the curb with his head smacked. My sergeant pulls up. <clears throat> and before you know it, we're ready to go to battle. We're all we're we're in a circle, all the cops. We're surrounded by two or three deep these people have kitchen utensils forks you know one guy had a shovel like a snow shovel friggin <laughs> august the guy's got a snow shovel they're all surrounding us now this wasn't something that we were like unusual or unaware of we worked in this area we knew what, what went on this you got to remember this is the 70s this is this isn't post george floyd this is like the way it was back in 1976 1977 my sergeant comes up to me 
and in front of all these people, points his finger in my face, and he says, cool it, cool it. Instead of turning around and being on our team and telling the hood to back off this man laying here is under arrest. We're taking him in the wagon. He's going. Uh, he did not do that. Long story short, we end up getting out of there. We end up with the truck. Lo and behold, the shotgun's in the truck behind the seat. He must have put it in there just as I walked up to the truck, the shotgun. So he was going to shoot somebody in that friggin' house who was going out with his niece or something. It was like a typical domestic, drunk, summertime, hot, humid. I got a shotgun. I'll blow you away. Somebody calls the police. He runs out to the truck, hides his shotgun. He thinks he's going to drive off. We got there just in the nick of time. So this is all over. We drive away. The guy's arrested. We got the truck. Now I'm, I've had it up to here with this sergeant. I go back to the police station. I go out of service. You can go out of service so you're not available for radio call. I spent the next three hours writing. I think it was either three pages or five pages anyway. I turned the sergeant in. Now, it's never hurt. It's never, it's never, it's never been done before. A, a patrol <laughs> turning in his sergeant for incompetence, uh, lack of supervision, and cowardice. <laughs> Three charges. I get it all typed up. I hang it on the book. So by this time, our shift is almost over by 12 o'clock. By the time the guys start coming back in to book off so they can get out to the bars before they close, on every bulletin board, the, the detective division, detention, patrol division, is this memo hanging up, me turning in Sergeant Listro. Oh, the friggin' police department goes totally crazy. Now, I'm enemy number one. So... The party starts. He turns me in. The next thing you know, uh, I get called to the chief's office. This goes on for a number of, of weeks. I have a hearing. Uh, we prevail in the hearing because all of the other cops testified in my behalf. And I end up beating the city in a hearing of which I had a public hearing. The city does not like to have public hearings. They hadn't had one in like friggin' 20 years. I forced them to have a public hearing and embarrass themselves for the politics that they were playing. And they were only covering because he was a sergeant, I'm a patrolman. If a patrolman is allowed to turn in an incompetent, politically corrupt sergeant who doesn't know what he's doing on the street and gets scared of other people, God, we're going to have a big problem because there's 250 patrolmen on the job. Long story short... Uh, I get away with it. I think I got like two days off or whatever. Now I'm on their wanted list. I'm on the New Haven Police Department wanted list. So another uh, four or five months go by. Thanksgiving Day. My wife's birthday. The one that I, the, the wife that I just was with yesterday. And, and this morning, uh, it's her birthday, November 23rd, 1978. I have the day off. My best friend has the day off. He's a cop also. Vietnam, three tours, special forces, hired assassin, tremendous guy. 
Billy Burke, we're driving to Rhode Island on Thanksgiving morning at five o'clock in the morning to surprise our family and buy these giant six, eight, nine pound lobsters. There's a commercial lobster house there, this and that. We're going to bring them back home and our, our respective families are making turkey dinner and this and that. And we're going to give our wives these big giant turkeys. I mean, these big giant uh, lobsters to put on the table with the turkeys. As we're driving on the highway, the gun goes off. My gun, not my police department gun, my gun goes off and the bullet goes in my hand out here under my car seat lands in the floorboard of my of my car my hands bleeding but i'm fine and alive that starts a whole new investigation by the police department that's that's when they said okay it's thanksgiving day <laughs> the, the connecticut state police had happened on the highway uh i was perfectly fine fortunately didn't blow my friggin hand off but they had to call the New Haven Police Department to make sure that me and Bill were cops because we got a gun, a guy got shot, we tell them we're cops, uh, we show them identification, but they call the police department. The police department said, oh, Lou Gold, we're finally going to get him now. <laughs> Thanksgiving Day, they launch a major internal affairs investigation. They send out three detectives. 40 miles from the city of New Haven, where I'm a cop, searching all over for bank robberies, holdups, gun uh, reports, and this and that, trying to get me to get even with <laughs> me for what I did to the sergeant months earlier and embarrassed the police department. This is the politics of the job at the time. The city of New Haven at that time was run by a big Yale guy. He was the, um, the mayor, Frank Logue. Okay, so everything and anything was run through the Democratic Party at that time. Uh, Yale was all Democratic. The chief who was elected, who was uh, put in a position at that time, Ed Marone, who I used to be uh, very good friends with, uh, he was got to do everything that he's told to do. And bango, they this investigation is launched. It goes on for. Uh, well, it actually goes on for almost a month, but the very next day I go back to work. I have a tube in my hand for drainage. Um, I cannot work as in patrol, so I work in CCS, the complaint section, answering phones. But my lovely wife that I was with today, by total coincidence, on my birthday, two months earlier, a new uh, device had come out on the market called a microcassette recorder. You may, may or may not remember them, but they had the little tapes. And uh, she bought me one for, for, for my birthday. And that morning when I'm leaving to go to work, she used to call me honey back then. She said, honey, make sure you bring your tape recorder with you. <laughs> I said, why? She says, well, I have a funny feeling when you go to work tomorrow, uh, this morning, because they let me work the day shift. When they go to work this morning, they're going to start asking you questions. Sure, shit, I wasn't at work for more than one hour the sergeant from uh, Sergeant Kuntz from uh, Internal Affairs comes up to the complaint section. That's where you answer phones and dispatch police cars and everything. And he said, I'm ordering you down to Internal Affairs. I said, oh, my God. I didn't even know how to turn the friggin' tape recorder on. I turned the tape recorder on. And I said, I have a right to remain silent, this and that, blah, 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 blah. He says, I'm ordering you. I said, well, you can order whoever you want, blah, blah, blah. From that point on, for the next three weeks, every meeting, every conversation I had with the chief of police, 
both on the phone, because in Connecticut, you only need one party uh, um, uh, permission at that time to tape record. And in person, I would put the tape recorder on the desk. I taped every single conversation I had. Every time they tried to double team me and uh, do this and do that, try to force me to give them a statement. We already gave a statement to the state police. You know, me and Bill, we told them what happened. They tried to do everything they could to flim flam me out of a job i said do whatever you want they finally had a, i made them have another public hearing they fired me they fired me within a matter of four hours uh for insubordination i was insubordinate because i wouldn't give the chief of police a statement about something that he had no business knowing about or having to know about it wasn't in his jurisdiction i wasn't on duty five years go by we followed a federal um uh, a federal lawsuit in, uh, in New Haven jurisdiction, Judge Ellen Burns, and because of all those tapes, because the city of New Haven ultimately had to concede that every single one of those tape-recorded conversations and orders that I was given, they had to concede that they were true and accurately recorded, and that what the city of New Haven did was unlawful and unconstitutional, they had no right to order me to give them a statement, I was found to be not guilty without even a jury trial. It was in summary judgment. The judge decided that uh, the city uh, uh, unconstitutionally uh, discharged me. So that was like, by that time, it was um, 1985 by the time that I, we ultimately had the federal trial. Um that whole lesson for me at that time i was 35 years old dustin was four years old um my daughter was two years old but by age 35 and probably when i got fired by age 29 i had realized that the bureaucracy and administrative world in which I thought I wanted to make a career, and I love police work. I, I do it today. I love the camaraderie. I love the guys. I love the challenge and this and that. It's changed so much now. You would never want to be a cop now. You, you can't get backed up. There's no qualifi qualified immunity. You have nothing protecting you. It's, it's very, very, very sad. That's why the crime is so high. It's cops just don't intelligently so there's no proactive policing any longer and that's really dangerous for a lot of people including the cops but uh i learned at a very early age that um you really don't want to put yourself in a position where the people who control your destiny are political hacks and bureaucrats and people who have they're playing with the house's money it doesn't cost them anything to sue you or fire you there's no personal ramifications for them or against them it doesn't cost them any money uh so they just fire you or demote you they don't give a shit whether you win or you lose somewhere down the line as long as they get rid of you um and that was my lesson and that and that forced me in a, i've been working for myself now for the last 40 45 years my clients are lawyers and other people i pick and choose who i, I will work for um I, i'm probably without exaggerating and 
being cocky, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm the best at what I do. But I think that lesson that I learned early on through the police department um, situation, it solidified in my mind that you do not want to put yourself in that position. And I think a lot of it, you know, rubbed off on my son because he, you know, he kind of saw a lot and associated with a lot of my friends, most of whom were cops, many of whom were lawyers afterwards. But you realize, hey, if you can figure out a way to to do do something on your own, it's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of commitment, a lot of investment. Uh, there's ups and downs in this and that, but at least you don't have the situation where someone can take your some political hack, crony, crumb, twerp can take your life, your career, your family, and your money and your mortgage away with a snap of a finger. And you, and to learn that when you're young is a very important lesson because if if I had had 25 or 30 years invested in the police department at the time and that happened, you know, uh, that would have made a hell of a lot more, done a lot more damage to me and my family than it would have when you're 29, you have money in the bank and you're, and you're healthy and, and cool and handsome and you have a lot of women. Well, I, I, I mean, yeah, but I, yeah, but I think, you know, you talk about the bureaucracy being able to snap their fingers. That's whether you're working in the so-called uh, public sector or the private sector. And then look at what just happened over the last two and a half years. You had bureaucrats at the highest levels in the United States government who snapped their fingers, pushed all these edicts down, and then people end up getting fired from their job or having to go get uh, a COVID jab. Uh, with with the threat of them losing their job. And again, if you're 45, 50, 60, the closer you are to retirement or, you know, if you have kids that you're saving money for for college or you've got a mortgage to pay, I know a lot of people that end up having to get jabbed and boosted because in their mind they didn't have a choice. Either their family was going to end up living in a tent. And your self-esteem is, you think of yourself a certain way that you have values and principles. 